You're listening to The Bob Sadak Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show on all of radio. Thank you so much for joining us this summer Sunday morning. What in the world has happened to our form of government? We are, in many ways, uh, the form of government that the founders gave us in theory only, but not in practice. I dare say, and I'm not trying to be extremist, but I'm speaking, I think, from my heart and from my mind, that in many ways... We resemble the form of government our founders worked so hard to give us. We resemble that form of government the way the Russian system of government resembles a democracy. Yes, in Russia and other uh, authoritarian-run countries, yes, there are elections. There are elections in Venezuela. There are elections in Cuba. There are elections in Russia. So they, on theory, those countries are democracies with democratically elected leaders and members of their legislature. But of course, they are not in practice. They are They go through the motions, but not in practice. Now, in no way, shape, or form am I equating our government, our system, to those that I mentioned. Of course, I am not. However, the similarity between the theory of our form of government, as given to us by the founders, and the practice, how it works on the ground, day by day, the gap between the theory and the practice is wide and getting wider all the time. The uh, The balance of power is an imbalance of power. It is only a balance in theory. And that has permanent, profound effects upon every one of us who lives under this system. And many of my guests have spoken about this, But only, only my guest this morning has solutions and can passionately and accurately describe the problem and the solution. With that introduction and with a big task in front of us of solving the problem, I'm happy to welcome back to the show uh, Ivan Eland. Ivan is the director of defense policy study. He was a director of defense policy studies at Cato, uh, and he spent 15 years working in Congress. He knows Congress inside and out. He knows defense policy inside and out. He now writes for the Independent Institute, an organization that I passionately follow, read, attend their meetings. The Independent Institute is centered in uh, Oakland, California, in the Bay Area, and they do just wonderful, wonderful work. Ivan has written a new book, War and the Rogue Presidency, the Rogue Presidency, subtitled Restoring the Republic After Congressional Failure. Ivan's book is important because he includes the restoring part. So it's not just a a book, a polemic complaining about the system, but Ivan offers tangible and doable solutions. Uh, Ivan, welcome to the show this morning. And as I introduce you, your book, of course, focuses on the effect of the use of the word, the effective use of the word, war, in the transition from the government our founders gave us to the government we are, for the minute, stuck with in 2019 America. Welcome to the show this morning, Ivan. Thanks for having me on, Bob. Now, Ivan, in your book, uh, you trace, uh, you do uh, a wonderful job tracing the history of the 
change of the, the deterioration, if you will, of the system of government our founders gave us to the system of government in operation that we have in 2019 America, and how war has been so important in the process. Now tell us about the relationship between the deterioration, in, in your view and in my view, of the operation of our government, the relationship of that to war. And first tell us what the deterioration is, in your opinion, and how war has had so much influence on that process. Well, war is a uh, defining event in society, as we all know. Not only do people get killed, uh, whether it's uh, domestically like the Civil War or overseas, when America goes to war overseas, uh, we, we also spend a lot of money. And also, there's a lot of effects here at home, even when we have overseas wars. And some of those are the concentration of power in the executive tends to do so. Now, sometimes that's temporary, but it's sort of a ratchet effect. You know, we go back to some other state, but it never gets completely back to where it was before the war. So it's kind of a stair-step ratchet approach to this sort of thing. Every time we have another war, uh, it's demonstrated the government gets into some other thing domestically because we have to regulate this or that to get war, war supplies, create uh, uh, war industries, etc. So this demonstrates and some people benefit from it. So then they say, well, gee whiz, um, we could have the government regulated during peacetime and we can still be as prosperous in our industry or whatever. So there, there's a lot of, you know, demonstration effect where the government goes into various places and people make money off of it. It's not necessarily good for the country. It may be good for the war effort while the war's on, but then, of course, the effects linger over into peacetime. So this idea that um, we, we get a bigger government and and that government is is in the executive branch because, you know, we get new agencies. And when we have a, uh, new functions that the government's performing, uh, and then it doesn't go back to completely the way it was during, during peacetime. And this started probably with the Spanish-American War uh, for good, uh, in the Civil War, we went up with a government, but then it was demobilized. In the, in the 1900s, when you had a congressionally dominated government, it didn't happen as much. But uh, turn of the 20th century, in the Spanish-American War and World War One, in, in particular, World War One was a watershed because the uh, government really had great influence over the entire economy for the first time, even greater than during the Civil War. And, of course, a lot of the, a lot of the functions uh, became, when, when we had the next crisis, the Great Depression, uh, they actually used the war model to battle the Great Depression, which had nothing to do with war, uh, but was nearly... Ivan, give us uh, some examples, <clears throat> give us some examples, if you would, of the erosion uh, of power, <clears throat> excuse me, or the increase in power of the government. Uh, during World War One, well, we had we had for one. Here's a here's a really what seems like a mundane example, but it shows you how far the government reach went. Daylight savings time was created during World War One to save energy, and then of course uh, this is an this is a example of creeping government program. Uh, in the 1970s, when we had the oil embargo, Richard Nixon, because we had it six months, we had standard time six months of the year and daylight savings time uh, the other six months. But in the 1970s, early 1970s, uh, with the oil embargo, Richard Nixon decided that, well, we really need to save even more energy, so we're going to daylight savings time for eight months. <coughs> Excuse me. And the... Uh, uh, standard time for four months. So, and it's very odd because, of course, we had the daylight savings time during the portion of the year where we really don't need to save daylight because we have plenty of it, right? So, uh, and the standard time, which was the original time, is now down to four months per year, which is the current status. So, this is a program that started um, during World War One to save energy. 
Uh, we also have um, we had the nationalization of railroads during that period, and of course, you know, the modern day Amtrak is, uh, has sprung out of that. That you know that this was an idea, an area where the federal government should be involved, which of course it never was before. So we have. You know, we see things like this. Uh, don't forget you know, the income uh, tax. Ivan, don't forget the well, income tax. Yeah, well, the income tax originated with the Civil War, and then it went out of, it was declared unconstitutional, which it was, and then they brought it back in the late 1800s. Um, and, uh, you know, they, the income tax was brought in slightly before the war. It became such a hit during the World War One because they could raise so much revenue from it that they never looked back after World War One. Uh, World War One really made the income tax. Um, and then in World War II, uh, the income tax was converted from a class tax on the upper classes to a mass tax, so they expanded the amount. And then they also... Um, started with Holden, which, of course, was the government sort of defrauding its own citizens by um, not telling them what, how much tax they were paying. The withholding allows you, allows the government to make people focus on their return, their refunds or at the end of the year instead of focusing on their overall tax bill. And they also, it, it allows you to pay in installments, essentially, uh, and of course, we all know how that works. Uh, when people pay in, in installments, they don't—they don't. Not only do they not realize how much they're paying, but also uh, it's easier on them. They used to pay it in the taxes in a lump sum. So all these things happen. The income tax is a, is a key uh, program because it generated so much revenue that you know all sorts of different government programs can be funded with that. So that's. Uh, you know that's a, a real one of, one of the bigger ones that uh, has come along because of war. And all of these are wrapped. Uh, our government has gets the the power, gets the uh, public behind it. Because how could anybody oppose? steps that are designed to win a war. No one wants to lose a war, so Congress is able to enact measures during wartime that they might struggle or be unable to enact during peacetime. We all, and Ivan, of course, most important because it is recent, and most of our listeners were alive then, um, was all of the loss of civil liberties, uh, which occurred after 9-11. All of that was also done in the days, literally the days after the events of 9-11. So tell us about what has happened that profoundly affected the relationship between Americans and our government after 9-11 and under the cover of the 9-11 events. Yeah, well, this is a, also a consequence of war. 9-11 was the first uh, emergency to uh, constrain civil liberties. So we had that in that World War One and World War Two as well, uh, in the Vietnam War as well. But that after 9-11, we had such things as the military commissions, which had been used since the Civil War, but have been unconstitutional every time they use them. They used them in the Civil War, World War II, and then, of course, Bush brought them back after 9-11 to, trial, to, to try terrorists, even though the civilian courts have a better record. As we see, the military commissions have been a disaster because we're 18 years down the road from 9-11, and they've had very few tr trials into this military commission system, and it's sort of a kangaroo-type system anyway. And the federal courts have been much more successful in the open, in the open trying uh, terrorism suspects over that same period. Uh, the, and of course, we, have, we also had torture, um, which was against international law and U.S. domestic law when they did it. We had um, spying on uh, citizens 
through the NSA, um, which is not which was supposed to be prohibited, uh, and it was, it, they did it illegally. And then, of course, Congress partially ratified it later on. Um, and so we and we have you know these types of things. We had the suspension of habeas corpus um, by the president. Now there was supposed to be the Constitution says in Article One, which deals with Congress, that the, that the Congress could basically suspend habeas, habeas corpus, but it had to be under really restrictive uh, conditions, either an invasion or an insurrection. Of course, the 9-11 attacks were neither, and of course, so the, even Congress would not have been authorized to suspend it, but uh, Congress didn't suspend it. George Bush did by saying that these uh, detainees, no matter how heinous they were, could not challenge their detention. And of course, when you start doing that to terrorists, and then, then later on, these, these uh, illegal and unconstitutional procedures become uh, start being used on regular citizens and that sort of thing. So we always have to watch that. And so George W. Bush really opened the floodgates by a lot of these, um, you know, illegal and unconstitutional. Uh, violations of civil liberties after the uh, 9/11 attacks, and a lot of that stuff. And it should be mentioned. Uh, Congress, uh, 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 this, oh. Ivan, I just wanted to mention that pulled, you mentioned you, you mentioned sorry you mentioned military commissions. Those words almost seem benign. Military commissions. It sounds like a bunch of bureaucrats. In fact. The use of military commissions means the total abandonment of any protections of people accused of something, all of the due process protections that have been around in Western civilization since the Magna Carta. Those are taken away by putting, uh, in effect, the judicial process into the military. So those words that Ivan used are not benign bureaucratic words. They are really important. Habeas corpus that Ivan used. Habeas corpus, well, it's a Latin phrase. People don't really know what it means. Habeas corpus is the protection against government locking you up without having a good due process reason. It is what keeps us free. And Lincoln was the first to suspend habeas corpus during the Civil War. He did that on his own. And now we have George Bush again. Nothing is more basic to our system than the right to be protected by habeas corpus. And that gets dismissed away with a shrug because of, quote, terrorism, a tactic. So these words are very, very important. And the fact that there were so many of so many of these rights that were taken away under cover of fear of terrorism uh, cannot be understated. And so Ivan lists very important changes in the relationship between citizens and its government. Sorry, Ivan. Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, um, that's that's you're right on target about that, uh, and we have a lot of episodes in history where the threat wasn't anywhere near what they they uh, said to to do these things. As I mentioned, you know, the original concept was that Congress would suspend habeas corpus, but only if the country were under an invasion or we had a mass insurrection. Of course, when Lincoln did it, we had an insurrection, but even uh, he uh, put it in up and down the East Coast uh, instead of, you know, local areas where it needed to be done. At first it was local, but then he spread it uh, far and wide, and there was really no military justification for what he did. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, that had, that has become a precedent uh, for the president to do that instead of the Congress. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, Bush, uh, um, you know, resurrected this after 9-11. And that's the problem when you have these unconstitutional things happen in the United States and there's no pushback, then they'll, they'll 
a future president will say, well, hey, so-and-so did it, you know, and, and of course, Lincoln uh, is a very revered person, so Bush said, well, you know, Lincoln suspended it during the Civil War, so uh, that's a precedent, and I'm bringing that back. So you have to watch these precedents that are set that are very bad uh, for the country, no matter who does it. Now, I... We're going to go to break in about five minutes, but before we do, we are going to talk about, with Ivan, uh, how, as I said, how war plays into all of this. And war, small word, three letters, big, confusing meaning. Now, war changes in the relationship between the, in the balance of power among the three branches of government. War is a game changer. Whatever the structure was that that the founders gave us in the Constitution with the checks and balances in the various branches of government, that changes to some degree when war happens. So tell us, Ivan, in a, in a, just if you can briefly, how things change constitutionally during war. And most importantly, and I think the most difficult question is, what is a war? Because we have had wars on behavior, war on drugs. We have had wars on economic condition, a war on poverty, and wars on a, on a military tactic, war on terror. So please tell us, under the Constitution, how does war change the balance just in wartime, and what does war in the constitutional sense even mean? Well, of course, as you point out, the term has been taken and expanded wildly to war on uh, drugs, war on uh, poverty. And, of course, you know, we use the military metaphor even for sports now. Uh, well, one team is going to battle back if they're behind in the score or whatever. And so this is the, the problem with this discourse is that we've lost sight of what a war really is. A war is a you know, killing people, one side trying to kill the other and vice versa on, on a fairly large scale. But, of course, then it comes to, what, well, what do you do uh, if it's lesser than that? It's like a skirmish or like the quasi-war with the French, which was the naval jousting among the uh, navies uh, at an early stage in our history. Is that war? Well, the founders, first of all, they said... War used to be, they looked at the European kings and what they did, and they re regularly took their countries to war, and the cost and blood and treasure uh, seeped down to the common person. And so the founders said, well, no, we want the Congress, the representatives of the people, to decide uh, whether we're going to have war or not. Uh, so we're going to do. We're going to have the Congress declare war, but then we'll turn it over to the Commander in Chief, who is uh, who's merely the Chief General or Chief Admiral on the battlefield, and that will be the President. That will be the executive function. In other words, carrying in foreign policy, just as domestic uh, affairs, the President was supposed to execute what the Congress uh, had passed, and the Congress was supposed to declare war. Well, we haven't declared war since World War II. So this is currently uh, being abused, and we've had several uh, big wars. We've had uh, Korean War was not declared, um, and we use these euphemisms. Well, it was a peace, a peace, um, um, you know, uh, police action. It was a police, a police action. action. So I want to say yes, police action. It's not a war. Well, the problem is if you go back to the Constitutional Convention, the, the they created this provision for things short of war, which was, at the time, the only thing short of war was a, a, a privateering, which was government-licensed piracy in times of conflict. And so they had these letters of mark uh, that they issued, that the Congress would issue to uh, commission private citizens to take a shit up, ship out and, uh, you know, try to... Try to uh, uh, get the enemy ship and their boot their their uh, ships and capture them, whatever. So the Congress had intended for Congress to really, and during the quasi war with France uh, in the seventeen late seventeen nineties, uh, Congress even regulated that 
uh, unofficial war. So there are things that are not war in the uh, in the broader sense, but even Congress was supposed to approve things like that. And of course, you know, when we have a war on terror, this is like uh, drone attacks here or there. Even those really should be approved by Congress because uh, they're not really official. They haven't been made official. So a lot of these is sort of illegal right now that that's happening in Somalia, uh, Pakistan, uh, Libya, et cetera, et cetera. And so even these things short of all-out war are really, were really supposed to be um, approved by Congress. So what we have is we have a series of, in the pure constitutional sense, and I'll explain what I mean after the break, we have a series of unconstitutional wars where thousands and thousands of Americans have died unconstitutionally under where the president assumes the powers of commander-in-chief, a wartime concept, even though we are not at war in the constitutional sense, and he's able to spend buckets of money and kill tens of thousands of American lives. And the question is, how does this happen? Is this, has we been subject to a coup by the office of the president? Have they just taken over? Or has Congress appointed them as the president as permanent commander-in-chief. How did this happen specifically, and how do we stop it? When we come back from our very brief 30-second break, don't worry, solutions are on the way. Please stay tuned. Remember the free speech movement? Started in Berkeley in the 60s. At Berkeley today, students protest against free speech and picket when a controversial, usually conservative speaker is scheduled. At other top universities, professors are terrified of their students. The free exchange of all ideas has disappeared. My new book, The Bubble, explores how higher education became America's most overrated product. Students spend four critical years of their lives in an expensive bubble of indoctrination, and they're creating a second bubble in the process. Luckily, a small, dedicated minority is fighting back against repressive campus speech codes and disinvitation campaigns. Learn how universities have created a bubble within a bubble, a trillion-dollar financial bubble in student loan debt propped up by a bubble that protects from offensive speech. Now some are even suggesting student loan forgiveness. It's time to burst the bubble. Book now available at bobzadek.com. Welcome back to the Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show in all of radio. Thanks so much for listening this summer Sunday morning to my conversation with Ivan Eland. Ivan was the uh, Director of Defense Policy Studies at Cato he spent 15 years working up on the Hill, various governmental posts. He now writes for the Independent Institute and has just written War and the Rogue Presidency. Rogue Presidency. Restoring the Republic after congressional failure. Now, Ivan, we haven't had any, any drama involving a coup by the various office holders of the office of the president. So this is not anything that that was accompanied by drama. You have accused uh, Congress of negligence. I may take issue with the use of that word, but that's quite minor. Uh, how did it happen that the president is able to take command of troops, order troops overseas, order troops to kill citizens of another country just because the president feels it's in the country's best interest or perhaps something more sinister. How did it happen that the president is able to do that? After all, Congress controls the purse. The president cannot do anything unless Congress affirmatively gives the president the money. So is this really an abdication of Congress? How did it all happen? And specifically, tell us about uh, the authorization of the use of military force and how that 
acronym that AUMF fits into all of this? Well, the problem started uh, happening uh, in the Korean War where Harry Truman, uh, you know, this was a major war. We were in North Korea that invaded South Korea, and Truman made the decision he wanted to send forces to help the South Koreans, even though I had stupidly written it off as a defense perimeter. Either you're going to defend it or you don't. And he probably should have just said, well, Korea is not that important at the time, and and not and you know said uh, well, well this is outside our defense perimeter which they which is what they said but the problem is when the North Koreans took that as an invitation to invade then Truman changed his mind and said well oh I guess we better you know defend this country but he did not get a declaration of war and this was a major military action so this was the first. Uh, transgression. Now, Ivan, Ivan, uh, can you help us? Ivan, one question. Can you help us understand why Truman did not choose to just behave constitutionally by the book, go to Congress and ask for a declaration of war against North Korea? That would have been the right way to do it. And the sensible way, why didn't he? Well, I think his Secretary of State had a rather arrogant uh attitude and an agenda that he wanted to increase executive power. And Truman, you know, he wasn't, he didn't have really too much uh, experience. Uh, he was, a, he had been a senator, but, you know, he wasn't really a, what you'd call a, an intellectual. He, he had been a haberdasher in uh, Missouri and that sort of thing. And he wasn't really, um, I think he was sort of under Atchison's um, uh, guidance. However, you know, he, he not only did not get a declaration of war, but then he tried to nationalize the steel industry in the United States and, and, and you know, just seize it, but with the government uh, running the mills, because he said, well, you know, we need to steal for the war. Well, the Supreme Court said, listen, basically, you're the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, but you're not commander-in-chief of the country, and that is a crucial distinction. So he was beaten back on the domestic side, um, but they still allowed him, Congress still allowed him to do this, and they they should have, they offered to do a declaration of war, but Atchison didn't want it because he felt it just wasn't necessary that the president should have uh, um uh, primacy in foreign affairs, which came from a case in the 1930s called Curtis Wright. And I won't go into the details of the case, but they brought back Hamilton's original saying that uh, the executive is the um, sole organ of U.S. foreign policy, which, of course, is nonsense, because as I mentioned before, most of the powers in, in uh, even foreign policy where the president is now dominant, uh, are with Congress. You know, you have the, they have to ratify treaties. They have to, uh, you know, uh, approve of the, all the people in the cabinet that deal with foreign affairs and defense uh, by con- confirming them. They have to declare war. They issue letters of mark and reprisal, et cetera, et cetera. So you have, I count, 17 powers which the Congress has over war and foreign policy, and the executive has four. And the original commander-in-chief uh, power, which the presidents now rely on to do the things that we we're talking about, George W. Bush after 9-11, relied on this commander-in-chief power, again, trying to be commander-in-chief of the country. Well, this time, uh, the Supreme Court did push back, but to some extent, uh, it let George W. Bush be the commander-in-chief of the country. It didn't let Truman back in the, back in the early 50s, but it, it did now. So you can see the erosion. And this was, uh, this was the uh, Supreme Court, but the, the Congress has also advocated its power uh, to declare war. It acquiesced during the uh, Korean War and continues to do so. Um, you know, an, an example is that this, uh, the Military uh, Commissions Act Congress said, well, no, you can't do that because uh, it's ill. Well, they eventually capitulated and passed the Military Commissions Act uh, and allowed the president to do some of the things that, that, that they had previously said, well, you can't do. So Congress has abdicated 
really, uh, I would say, is probably starting in World War One, but certainly down to the present, and particularly from Truman on, it has really advocated its powers, and not only the war power, but the budgetary power. It, it now just putters around at the budget uh, on the executive budget, and uh, and as far as wars go, Congress has always been. Um, reluctant to pull funding for troops already in the field. Well, troops aren't supposed to be in the field unless Congress approves it. But now the executive, what happens is he, he decides that he wants to send troops somewhere. Uh, so then he sends them, and then he confronts the Congress with, with a fait accompli. And, they, and, of course, they're not going to defund forces that are being shot at somewhere overseas. And, of course, the troops and the country don't want that to happen. But the real problem is he's allowed to send those forces without congressional approval in the first place. And that's where we need to correct the system, I think. And so you said Congress has abdicated. Uh, I have had guests on my show in the past. Jeff Bergner comes to mind about six or eight weeks ago, where it's not an abdication in the negligent sense, but rather Congress would rather not get criticized for doing something wrong. And the way they avoid criticism, which means get reelected, is by not doing anything and being and allowing by not preventing, allowing the president to take the heat for sending troops overseas, when in reality the president can only do it if Congress empowers the president. Now, we'll take our caller in a second, but one point I want to make, uh, ask Ivan to comment on. In your book, the title of your book is War and the Rogue Presidency. Um, I think the book almost, uh, to some degree, contradicts or qualifies the word rogue. The rogue suggests the president is doing something somehow improper, illegal, immoral, something bad. But in point of fact, isn't it the case that everything the president does, it the president, and I'll use it as not as a person, but as an office, the presidency only can do something if Congress empowers it, or if Congress hasn't empowered it, if the courts say it's okay. So the president is not really being a rogue. Isn't it true the president is simply enjoying the power he has because the other branches have, or the legislature has cowardly uh, abdicated, your phrase, their responsibility? Is the word rogue accurate or am I maybe it is accurate and I have missed that point well let's go back a ways in the early 1970s Arthur Schlesinger who was a historian he thought that you know the the presidency had become so powerful in foreign affairs and national security that was bleeding over into the domestic scene namely the Watergate scandal and he was correct in that um, because the original plumbers, Richard Nixon, got to do, do political dirty tricks, were eventually were originally uh, created to uh, uh, plug leaks that were coming out of the uh, bureaucracy about the Vietnam War and in the Cambodian uh, area of, of uh, well, it was the war in Southeast Asia, but particularly the Cambodian incursion. So. He turned the, the Schlesinger termed this the imperial presidency, meaning uh, this power in foreign affairs was now bleeding over into the domestic scene. And so uh, I use the term rogue because I think the presidency is rogue. It's not only imperial in the fact that it's acquired all this power, but uh, particularly beginning with George Bush, uh, he just did things illegally that were that were illegal. Uh, for instance, domestic spying. He knew that that was that, that was illegal, and he committed an illegal act there. We we also have the torture. Torture was, as I mentioned before, was against domestic and international law, but he chose to do it anyway. So uh, 
you know, you'd see, uh, and this continued through Obama and now Trump. Now we have Trump uh, saying, well, I really want to build my border wall, and we got to take private land from ranchers. And I know that's illegal, but I'll pardon whatever executive branch official does that. Now that's, you know, that that's pretty, that's sort of, it's gone into sort of rogue behavior. The imperial presidency sort of was, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And if the Congress doesn't abdicate its authority, I'm certainly going to take them up on it and I'm going to accrue power. Now I think we're, we, we've, since 9-11, I think we've gone into the, this idea where the president uh, can can do things that he just declares he's going to do. Uh, Barack Obama uh, just said, well, uh, Congress has an act, so I need to. Well, anytime you hear that, that's an illegal statement because Congress is supposed to legislate. But now we have a situation where everybody legislates, but the legislature, the the, the uh, as you mentioned, Congress now passes vague laws because they don't want responsibility for them. Let's take a non-military example. In the environment area, they pass, oh, we want clean air, clean, clean water, and then we're going to leave the standards to the executive branch to to create. Well, okay, then the executive branch is legislating. Well, then you have environmental groups or industry groups who don't like the standards that the bureaucrats create, so they sue in court. And then, of course, the, then that when the court decision comes by, the courts are now legislating. But what should have happened to prevent all this from happening is that Congress should have legislated very specific um, rules that they want to put in environmental regulations, which, you know, you can debate whether that's a good idea or not, but... But if they do that, they should be specific about what they want and how it's supposed to work. And so, you know, this, of course, all is even you double this effect in, in foreign policy because, as I said, since the 1930s, we seem to have this erroneous notion that the, the, the executive should have a foreign policy dominance. Uh, and uh, so who knows what we're going to see um, in, the, in terms of warfare, now we, we've got eight eight wars going. We don't even know really how many there are because some of these are done secretly, um, and so we have all these wars going on, which are to, which are totally illegal and unconstitutional. And they're uh, they were done. You mentioned the AUMF, the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, that was passed after 9/11, but. Uh, they're fighting groups that weren't even in existence in nine, uh, after 9/11 with this. So you can see that they're really they're, they're basically just blatantly violating that um, um, uh, you know authorization. So they did get some original authorization for the war on terror, but it's gone way beyond that. And it's it's very clear to everybody that they're overstepping. There's been moves in Congress. <clears throat> which haven't gone anywhere, to get a new resolution. If we're going to fight all these wars, we're going to need to <clears throat> put some legal veneer on them, at least. But they, they won't even do that. So cause, Because war, I think, is the ultimate thing that Congress doesn't want to take responsibility for <clears throat> because uh, they, if they don't want to be part of a losing war. Uh, they like to take they, they like to take credit if, you know, for having approved it if, if the war goes well, but they're not sure that that's going to happen. So what happens is the first Persian Gulf War with Bush, the elder, when a lot of Democrats voted against that because he did he didn't get a declaration, but he did see some some sort of approval. But he said, "Well, I have the authority to do this myself, but as a courtesy, I'm going to have Congress vote on it." Well, a lot of Democrats opposed that. Well, of course, the war was a tactical uh, success very one-sided. <clears throat> so the next time when his son went after Saddam Hussein to invade Iraq, <clears throat> excuse me, um, they, they they were very gun-shy because the first time that they voted against the war, they saw what happened to the last Democrats who voted against the war. They got voted out of office. So the second time, they didn't protest as much. A lot of them went along, and of course, the thing ended up to be a disaster. So this is the type of timidity that we get, especially with war, but on domestic, some domestic policies as well by these, these vague laws that the Congress really doesn't want to be held responsible because their ultimate goal is re-election, not uh, making good policy.
Now, Ivan, we have we're, we're regretfully getting low on time. An important part of your book is the solutions to the pickle we find ourselves in uh, today. And share with with us, if you can, some of your solutions. Because many others have written about the problem, but you're the only one that I'm aware of who offers concrete solutions. Give us an ex- some examples of how you would propose and how we could fix this process so we are not in a condition which we are today where most Americans who are alive today have never lived during a period of peace. It's astonishing, but that statistic is true. Most Americans only know war. That is like the normal state of affairs. What are some of the solutions in the final chapters of your book? Well, I think that uh, uh, one of the main ones is that we really need to <coughs> excuse me, um, put the uh, restore the incentives of the of the individual members with the institution as a whole. And this is uh, uh, the the incentives have separated uh, because the uh, I'm getting some interference on the program. Uh, So anyway. uh, Sorry. uh, I think it's okay now. We can hear you. Uh, so So we have this these individual incentives of members of Congress um, differing from their institutional incentives. And the institutional incentives are supposed to take precedence because James Madison featured, uh, figured that every branch of government would stick up for its own interests, and that that's not really happening. Now, the members are going off and trying to get reelected on their own with doing their own publicity and stuff. So I think you need to really restore that. And one way to do that is to try to structure Congress. And Congress can structure its own rules to make there more party discipline within the Congress. Now, this is not a perfect sense because they didn't design the system with so much partisan partisanship uh, involved. But I think it would help, um, you know, Congress push back as an institution if its members uh, had closer incentives to what the body's incentives were. So the, the problem is um, internal within Congress, that Congress itself um, has realized, the individual members realize that the secret of getting reelected is not to make decisions. Therefore, they surrender individually, but ultimately collectively, their power because with power comes the possibility to make a mistake. And if they give up the power and let the courts take the heat and just just look at the battles we have over Supreme Court appointments and you'll see how much heat the courts are getting and look at the power the executive has and just look at all the heat the president gets, all that heat is at Congress, uh, I'm sorry, at the presidency and the courts, which means not at Congress, and Congress just has hearings, just becomes a national collective scold on other branches of government, but doesn't enact legislation. And I ask our listeners out there, I challenge you to name an important piece of legislation that Congress has thoughtfully and collectively, that is, both Democrats and Republican support, have enacted, here it goes, in your lifetime. Just imagine a series of legislatures on both parties getting together and thoughtfully enacting anything important that collectively they can support. Don't knock yourself out. The answer will be zero. So Congress has become just an organization that is focuses only on its own preservation and not about what the country needs or wants, and they gleefully surrender all of their power to the other branches, and all they do is get reelected so they can have free parking at Reagan Airport. Uh, and so, Ivan, you you propose, um, although how we get there is a challenge, 
that Congress has to fix itself because the legislature has the power to make its own rules. Those rules are not constitutional. How, how likely is it that legislators will act against their individual self-interest in order to preserve the importance of the institution? Well, we have had some centralization in the last couple of decades in Congress, which I think is good. I think we still need more. We have, we have a system now that's very partisan without strong parties. And I think um, one of the ways is to get more party discipline in Congress. And you can do that by rule changes and strengthening um, you know, the Senate majority leader and the House uh, speaker. Uh, now, and the, the other advantage of that is if, if you have that, it's also more easy, easily, uh, it's more, it's easier to get things done because the leadership just negotiates, like McConnell would pick up the phone, call Pelosi at this point and say, listen, you know, can you bring your people along? We, we need to make this compromise and get some legislation passed. And she said, yes, I can bring my members along. We don't agree with the, your side, but we, maybe we can reach a compromise on this. But that's not what happens. Now we have 535 grandstanders who are out to use the media to get reelected on their own. They don't really have much loyalty to the, to the, to the leaders in Congress. And that's a real problem for getting anything done. And so, you're not going to, it's not going to be perfect because sometimes they're going to still do the wrong thing. But I think uh, the amount of legislation will go up and uh, certainly maybe the abdication will be less to the executive branch. Because now the problem is, you know, even if Congress makes a bad law, right now the president is filling it in. I hate to interrupt. We have zero time left. I want to thank Ivan for giving us an hour of his time on this three day weekend. Ivan, thank you so much for your work at the Independent Institute and for your book, War and the Rogue Presidency, Restoring the Republic After Congressional Failure. Thanks a lot to all my friends out there. Sorry to the callers who I couldn't get to this morning. We just had too much work to do, Ivan and I. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back again next Sunday.